Welcome back to uh, Policy Punchline. Here on the show, we tackle frontier issues uh, with leading thinkers and economists. Um, today on the show, we're welcoming Marcin Pietkowski. He is a senior economist at the World Bank and associate professor at the Kosminski Institute in Warsaw. He holds a PhD in economics from Kosminski University and an MA in finance and banking from the Warsaw School of Economics. Uh, Professor Pietkowski began his career in Citibank Poland and Citigroup USA. He then served in various governmental and NGO roles, including as an economist in the European Department uh, of the IMF, advisor to the IMF's executive director, and advisor to uh, Poland's deputy premier and minister of finance. Before he moved to the World Bank in 2008, he was chief economist and managing director of PKOBP, the largest bank in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, in 2018, he released a book with Oxford University Press called Europe's Growth Champion, Insights from the Economic Rise of Poland, which was awarded the best book in economics uh, in 2019 by the Polish Academy of Sciences. Uh, Marcin Piekowski, uh, welcome. Thank you for coming. Sure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so I think and you've spoken this, about this a lot um, in your scholarship. Uh, the history of Poland is really important to developmental economics, but it's not something that a lot of folks, especially in, in the United States, are, are particularly aware of. So do you mind just kind of covering the basics and, and why it's so important to us? Sure. So the, the book I wrote is not really only about Poland. It's a case study of Poland, but it, it talks more about the experience of Eastern Europe, which is also a region that most Americans would not really recognize. And Eastern, and for, for good reasons, because Eastern Europe, for pretty much 1,000 years of its history, has always been economically backward and underdeveloped. So there was not the major reason why someone should pay attention to the region. So the reason why I wrote a book is that something fundamentally unprecedented happened in 1989, which is when this, this region as a whole, that again, has not really been at the forefront of development ever, has suddenly started to develop and, and be successful. And Poland is the most successful economy in the region. It has more than tripled its GDP per capita in the period. It started out in, back in 89 with a level of income lower than Ukraine or Suriname or a number of African countries, in fact. And today it's richer than Portugal or Greece. So it's a great, uh, a remarkable success story that was largely unexpected because no one would put much money on, on Poland or on Eastern Europe back 33 uh, years ago. And I think it matters because we as economists, we always look for examples, for blueprints of success. Um, and having worked at the IMF and the World Bank, I've always noticed that there's a large, there's a very strong focus on the experience of Asian tigers or Chile, Botswana. But there's surprisingly very little, if anything, actually about the Eastern European experience. For some reason, the region is not really sexy. And, and most economic historians, pundits, economists, that really did not pay, pay much attention. So what I try to do is in the book is to explain why, what were the drivers of this success and why it matters for other countries. After all, there's 150 countries plus around the world that continue to be poor and or fail to catch up with, with developed countries. So Eastern Europe should be, in my view, one of the sort of standard blueprints that all um, experts or uh, students interested in economic development should look at. So not only Asian tigers, not only selected examples of other countries around the world, but Poland and Eastern Europe as sort of an, another set of interesting examples. Mm, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly was not aware of kind of Poland's history before approaching your work. Um, 
So it is kind of a remarkable growth story, not just uh, uh, kind of globally, but also among these Central European countries, these post-Soviet republics. So uh, when you were looking at this case study, what were the main drivers that you identified? What differentiated it? So I look at two set of drivers. The one I call them proximate and the second one ultimate drivers of growth. The proximate drivers are the ones that we at the IMF or the World Bank always talk about. So very specific reforms uh, that help these countries to be successful. Uh, Restructure the banking sector, open up uh, the markets, build institutions, um, uh, cut, restructure foreign debt, which was a big problem for, uh, for Poland, accede to the European Union. So all the very, very pragmatic policy choices and policy reforms that have happened in, in, in Poland and in the region in the run-up to the EU, to the European Union accession and afterwards. But the ultimate, I think the fundamental question to every economist is really, if we know so much about what makes, what kind of, what policies make sense for a particular country, which is something that we do at the World Bank uh, on a daily basis, how come there's so many countries that are still poor? If we have all these wealth of knowledge, including all the professor at Princeton, how, how come we still have poverty? Because the problem is, is not knowing what to do. The problem is to want to do and implement the policies that make sense. So in the book, I go beyond the proximate uh, reforms and ask the question about what are the fundamental drivers that have actually made the elites of these countries to want to adopt good economic policies in the first place. And for, for Poland and Eastern Europe, I argue there was a set of policies that never really happened before. First, because of communism, and that, that is sort of a controversial bit of, of my argument, I argue that communism was the external shock that had helped Eastern Europe as a whole to move from an all-type extractive oligarchic type of a society that hurt and undermined its development for, for centuries and communism actually eliminated the old feudal oligarchic elites that kept these countries poor. And because communism was economically not efficient, you cannot really see the benefits of, of having created an inclusive society up until 89. But when it happened, and, and Poland was the key driver of the fall of communism with Solidarność, Wałęsa, and others, actually the first country that became democratic in the whole post-Soviet system, so this inclusive society was critical because it meant that pretty much everyone, in principle, could be successful and could flourish uh, during the transition. So in fact, when you look at the CVs of people that truly made it, like billionaires on the Forbes list, they all came from nowhere, quote unquote. They, they had no connections. There were no billionaires. There were no aristocrats. There were no sons and daughters of Jeff Bezos. They just came from nowhere and they made it. So this inclusive society was, was critical. Um, and a couple of other um, factors. All these countries in Eastern Europe, including Poland, knew where they were going. They wanted to be like Europe. They wanted to be like Western Europe, which actually made them much different than, for instance, Russia or Ukraine, where from the very beginning, they did not know where they were going. So Poles, Czechs, Hungarians, they, from the beginning, they said, we want to be like Western Europeans. And we want to adopt all kinds of reforms that will be needed to, go, to get closer to them. And that was critical so that there was a very strong social consensus to become like Western Europe and to, to treat Western Europe as a blueprint for political and economic development, which I think really mattered. Uh, 
One other factor, the emergence of middle class. These countries never really had a middle class before, which, as, as many would argue, uh, is a foundation of a democratic and successful society. Without middle class, it's really difficult to pinpoint any country that would become rich and stay rich. And finally, Western institutions and the European Union. So this success would have not have happened was it not for the external reform anchor. The fact that there was the European Union and the West that said, yes, we want you to come in. We want you to become a member of the EU. But this is this, we, you have to meet this long set of conditions before you can get in. And it was very useful because it's pretty much in a decade, the whole of Euro Eastern Europe has absorbed 500 years of civilizational development of Western Europe. It was all part of acquis communautaire, so almost 90,000 pages of sort of institutional building that uh, Western Europe has worked on for centuries, which Eastern Europe absorbed, like downloaded like an app over a decade, and that created the foundation from, a, from a long-term growth. So in total, what I, what I do in the book, I go beyond the regular proximate reforms, you know, do this, do that, open up the markets, uh, privatize now, privatize later, and look at the fundamental drivers that, want, that made the elites of these countries to want to reform. Yeah. Uh, hearing you tell that story, because I've read, I've read you write it a few times, but hearing you describe it, it sounds a lot to me almost like, a, um, a, you know, early 19th century United States, this transition from kind of a localized extractivist economy into kind of a modern industrial nation state. Does that feel like an apt parallel? Is that some way that you can contextualize it for a kind of an American audience? Yes and no. Okay. Yes, because uh, it, it was a similar type of a transition to from an extractive to an inclusive society. Mm -hmm. And inclusive defined as, in principle, a high social mobility society where everyone can get good education and and you know, can be successful in life. Mm -hmm. In the U.S. It was different because it was an immigrant society that from the very beginning created its own institutions from scratch and in, at least in principle did not create an oligarchic society. So obviously from the very beginning there was, there was the, the antithesis. There was the, what the Americans never wanted. They, they wanted to create an inclusive society from, from the very beginning. That was not the case of Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe was the worst case of or serfdom-based societies that were ruled by very narrow elites for the benefit of very narrow elites for centuries. Uh, so again, so the big change that came that the U.S. needed much less of was the external shocks or the violence that was actually needed to weaken the existing, the incumbent oligarchic elites and create a new system. These oligarchic elites in Eastern Europe did not want to change on their own. Uh, they, they, their preference was to be, they felt that it would be better to be rich and powerful in a poor society than be not powerful and not necessarily rich in a rich society. So they chose to keep the system as it was, to, to sustain the status quo. And external shocks were needed, which in the case of Eastern Europe was the war and, and the Second World War and communism, to sort of remove these feudal oligarch oligarchic system for good. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is actually, what is the lessons learned for others? Again, there's 150 plus countries in Africa and Latin America and elsewhere. The lesson is that 
the, the oligarchic elites are very difficult to be removed. And more or less you need, and you know, don't quote me here directly, but you need a Stalin, you need communism, you need some big external shocks that would open up the society. Without the, the, the external shocks and the violence, the unfortunate violence that it's very often associated with these external shocks, it's very difficult to change the status quo. It's very difficult to open up the societies and make them inclusive and therefore make them prosperous in the long term. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think that emphasis on the, I don't know, the U.S. starting with a blank slate is important, uh, which kind of brings me to my next question. Um, you know, the entire Central and Eastern Europe region has experienced a good amount of growth over the last 20 years. But you kind of emphasize Poland as this like really exemplary uh, case. Um, but they all experienced this negative shock uh, of communism. So what differentiated Poland in that story? Have you been able to identify something there? Sure. The, so again, the, the, the story about this, the success is that so Poland has tripled its GDP and he's, has become Europe's growth champion. So over the last, the, the title of my book, over the last 33 years, Poland has by far the most successful economy in Europe, but also globally. So when you actually compare Poland to similar countries at the upper middle income and high income, at least over the last quarter of a century, it has grown faster than, than South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, pretty much any other country in that income group. So that's, that's been very unprecedented, and that's not something that, that anyone would expect. But the rest of Central and Eastern Europe, or Eastern Europe as the Americans call it, which we as Central Eastern Europeans don't really like it, but let's call it Eastern Europe I take for, that, absolutely. For, for now, is that actually all countries have done well, less well than Poland, and I'll explain what was the difference, but they all done well. So in fact, every single country now in the region uh, has become high income, uh, based on the World Bank definition. And Bulgaria, the only one left, will, will become high income within a year or two. So I would argue that Eastern Europe has never had a better economic time in its history than now. All of these countries from Estonia up north down to Bulgaria down south, never, they never had a higher income and they never been closer to the quality of life in the West, which is then benchmark including Bulgaria and everyone else. So they truly lived through the golden age. What made Poland more successful than others? Because again, it's tripled its GDP. Hungarians have not even doubled their GDP per capita. So there's a big difference. And I think this is where the proximate policies came into, uh, come into play. So the, the, the reforms that happened in 89 in Poland were, were a big difference. The, the much faster pace of institutional building, the fact that Poland, even under communism, was much different than other communist countries. And there's probably an apocryphal story, but Stalin won, was once asked about what he thinks, what are the chances of imposing communism on Poland. And he said that, that you know, again, imposing communism on Poland is like putting a saddle on a cow. And I think it was, he was right about it because Poles just never really. Uh, uh, identified with the system. So communism has always been different in Poland, including the fact that 20% of GDP, even uh, during communism, was actually in private hands, mostly in, in agriculture. So from the very beginning, Poland has started off much better than, uh, than everyone in the region. And there was a series of various 
policy reforms, be it to the banking sector, to opening of the markets, to investing in high quality education uh, with scholarization ratio that have skyrocketed from less than 10% of the society to more than 60 and 70% of society. So there's a series of policy differences that that made Poland more successful than others. Mm, gotcha. Um, so uh, in your paper called The Warsaw Consensus, you try and take this case study of Poland and turn it into kind of not quite a finite growth plan for other developing countries, but certainly a set of more generalizable lessons. Um, and specifically, you point to 10 pillars. Do you mind kind of outlining at least the major ones of those? Sure. 10, 10, <laughs> ten uh, points is, is a long list, but yeah, very quickly. Absolutely. So the, the Warsaw Consensus is, is obviously at riffs of the Washington Consensus, the mm -hmm. infamous Washington Consensus. Mm -hmm. So I talk about Warsaw Consensus as a sort of set of policies that, that would be an upgrade of the Washington Consensus, where it obviously did not work well. Now, Washington Consensus was not all bad. There are a lot of things that most economists, macroeconomists would, would agree with. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a broad tax base. There's nothing wrong with having uh, open markets. There is not much wrong with having thriving competition and so on and so forth. But I think what the Washington Consensus has really missed is at least two major areas. One is institution building, uh, which the Washington consensus totally ignored. And second, inclusivity or social mobility or low level of inequality. So that's these two differences are fundamental to explaining the success of, of Poland and Eastern Europe. Institutions, because none of this success would have happened without, again, the region not adopting Western institutions, uh, from from independent central bank through competition watchdogs, through independent public administration, through open markets, all the other things that we that Americans take for granted, they did not actually exist in Eastern Europe. So all of these countries again downloaded it virtually in the fastest pace in the history of humankind, and that made them successful. The Washington Consensus did not mention institutions at all. This is where the Warsaw Consensus comes in. And the second part is inequality. So the, when the IMF and the World Bank came up with the Washington Consensus, or rather it was the late uh, John Williamson that coined the term, the Washington Consensus, there was very interest in talking about inequality. We may, we may now, that has changed over the last 30 years, luckily, but there was very little talk about it then. And this inequality dimension is critical to create an inclusive society. And again, inclusive society is a society that in principles allows everyone to get good education and to be successful. Most countries in the world are not inclusive. And if you are born, if you choose your, uh, your parents in, uh, wrongly, if you're, wrong in a, if you're born in a wrong place at the wrong time to the wrong people, you're just not going to make it. In inclusive society, it really doesn't matter, more or less where you're born and who your parents are, you can still make it. So I think the, the two fundamental differences between the Warsaw Consensus and the Washington Consensus, the, the, the significance of building the right type of institutions, Western institutions more or less, and focusing on inclusive, of, on creating an inclusive society with high social mobility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like that inclusivity element 
you can really tie it back to that element of the shock and its development because it kind of does require a loosening of the grasp of oligarchs on the political system. Um, so I think that's a really important point. Another thing that stuck out to me was that the paper didn't suggest, didn't just suggest these pillars of policy, but kind of how to achieve and 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 modify policy over time. You point to this cycle between experimentation, evaluation, and pragmatism. Um, not to tie everything back to the U.S. history. That's what I'm most familiar with. Mm-hmm. This seems like kind of the driving ethos of, you know, at least ideally of American policy since like the progressive movement, uh, since like the advent of, of, of pragmatism, John Dewey, in, in the late 19th century. Um, do you think it's significantly different from that model? And if so, like, you know, how do you try to achieve that? Because I think it does require kind of unique political structures to, to get that kind of cycle of policymaking, that iterative process. That's a very good question, and I think very a very good topic for follow-up research. So whoever's listening to us, all the students, pay attention now. But the bottom line is, actually, various countries had de facto this type of uh, approach of experimenting, evaluating, and being pragmatic. You just mentioned about the, the U.S. Uh, I write about the sort of Polish experience of, of largely based on experimentation and, and being pragmatic about solutions. But there's also China. I mean, China's success was predominantly based on the same kind of a, of a similar approach, surprisingly perhaps to Americans, where, where you know, Deng Xiaoping reforms in 1978 started by uh, allowing one village to adopt a new system of, of farming and getting paid for the surplus food created by this little village. And why once everyone understood that this one village system works, it got it got scaled up to the whole country. So the Chinese experience, despite this being a, a one, you know, one party uh, state, communist state, has largely been about experimenting, about allowing provinces in China to experiment with different type of policies and seeing what works, what doesn't work. And the Communist Party in China was strong enough to be able, at least so far, We'll see if that happens in the future. It's a totally different debate. Has been has been smart enough to actually pick on the good policies and scale them up across the country. And I think that's a bit of the case of also Poland, Eastern Europe, because we were not that we that these countries are not big, so it, they cannot really have different policies in one small region or the other region. But they have all looked at one another. Poland would look at the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and vice versa. And that we would all try to see what kind of policies work there and what is that we should adopt back home. And I think this experimentation is critical. And I see this also every day at my and my World Bank job where where I use my research to advise countries on what type of policies to adopt and implement, because ultimately this is what what um, what matters. And I always try to tell them, look, this is the theory. This is the research. This is the results of our analysis. But you really have to be pragmatic in implementing. You have to understand that, first of all, implementing this new instrument, this new policy is not the end of the world. Make sure that you treat it as a pilot, evaluate it, and then see what works. You know, Make sure that it doesn't matter if the cat is uh, black or white, as Deng Xiaoping said. Just focus on the policy that it works. And very often policies that had 
that that were considered to be no-brainer and be successful, they totally failed. And vice versa, a lot of bad policies have turned out to uh, to work well exposed. So the bottom line is, it's very important not for policies not to be set in stone and to be adjustable based on a pragmatic approach. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting connection to China. It's one I hadn't really seen before. Um, but I think it also hits on uh, an important element, especially to the pillar of kind of Western institution building, which is that basically it seems like Poland immediately found one of the key tensions in Western institutions, which is between, you know, your technocrats, the bureaucracy, economists, you know, these social scientists, you know, running these economic programs, uh, if you gave them free range, you know, this process of experimentation, evaluation, pragmatism makes a lot of sense. But once you start mixing it with uh, uh, democracy, democracy has some amount of inertia. You could implement a social program that kind of is inefficient, but is extremely popular. Um, yeah. uh, for instance, with like cost controls or something like that or, or subsidies. Um, so, you know, my first question would be, you know, Poland creating these institutions from scratch, how did it resolve that tension? And does that reflect kind of how you'd want to see it happen? Sure. A great question. Let, let me start by, by saying that um, a lot of people, including in the U.S., have looked at the example of China and started to argue that being non-democratic is the way to go. It's the only way for countries to really develop and make it uh, be successful and make it rich. I think Poland and Eastern Europe shows the other way. Then, in fact, you can have a thriving democracy. There was 18 governments in Poland since 1989. So not one or two, not one single party. The, there were 18 governments from left, right, and center. And still, uh, the, the country and the region as a whole has been successful. So I think one of the critical bottom, line is, bottom lines is that you you can be a democracy and can be economically successful too. So again, these authoritarian models are not the only models that one can look up to. And and in Poland, I think the big and for the whole region of Eastern Europe, I think again, the 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 fundamental driving force was a strong social consensus to be like Western Europe. When at the age of 16, I got my passport, which I did not have before. I was not allowed to have a passport in communist Poland. So in, in 91, when I got my passport and I went to Germany for the first time, in 1991, myself and all my colleagues and my parents were saying that I'm going to Europe as if Poland was not part of Europe. So it, it, it's, it exemplifies this sort of very strong social yearning to come back to Europe, to be considered European, to, to follow the examples of the countries that we looked up to. And I think the, social, um, the strong social consensus was critical for, to, be, to become a part of quid pro quo between the society and, and technocrats. Virtually the society said, look, we want to be like Western Europe. We are happy to outsource some of our independence out of our our diversity in our values, we want to outsource it to you for now so that you bring us closer to Western Europe, to this prosperity and democracy that we see there. And I think this process has largely worked at least until the EU accession in 2004. So this, this societal quid pro quo, when again, we leave it to the experts, it's sort of, 
got toned down or diminished after 2004, where the diversity of values and polarization has really shown up. Uh, so Poland in many ways, and Eastern Europe in many ways today, it's very much like the United States. There's a huge social division between, you know, maybe not like only two parties. There's more parties in Poland and Eastern Europe, luckily. But there's a strong, strong political polarization, partly because the vision of developing going forward is not as clear as what it was 30 years ago. At that time, again, we all knew we want to be part of Europe. We want to be European again. This time, since all of these countries have actually kind of made it, the question is, what is the new vision for all the region going forward? And how can all these countries continue working, including the knowledge of all the technocrats, to really become as rich as, as the Germans or the French? Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's actually a really good transition because it does feel like Poland is increased, is, is in uh, uh, entering an increasingly uncertain period, at least in terms of domestic politics. Um, you wrote in all these papers in kind of the mid-2010s, um, a lot of projections had uh, Central European growth kind of slowing by the 2020s, at least in its convergence with Western Europe. Um, that has, seems like it's largely not proven to be the case, but are you a little less kind of bullish on the continued convergence given uh, the emergence of that political tension? Sure. So the, my bottom line is I'm optimistic for Poland and mm -hmm. for Eastern Europe as a whole to continue growing and catching up with the West until at least until the end of the decade. Um, and there's a number of reasons. One is that, that even Poland, having moved from about one-third of the German level of income uh, adjusted for purchasing power parity or PPP, so Poland moved from about one-third of the German level of income to now about two-thirds plus now. So that's that's been a great success, but at the same time, it also shows that is this one third that it's still still left for catching up. So countries like Poland can continue to grow by continuing to absorb ideas, technologies, capital from the neighbor, from Germany, uh, and Poles are as well or even better educated than Germans. So if you, for instance, if you are an entrepreneur in Berlin, and you can hire the same kind of person with exactly the same skills. 100 miles away in Poland, but you will pay one third or half of the salary that you will have to pay in Berlin, it's virtually a no-brainer to move your business to Poland and produce things there. So I think the region as a whole has still growth reserves that will allow, allow it to grow for the rest of the decade, where I think Poland will get to about 80% of the German level of income which will be pretty much the highest relative level of income for Poland and for most countries in the region ever in more, 1000, in, in more than 1,000 years of its history. What I'm more worried about is what happens after 2030, because countries like Portugal, Spain, Greece have shown that, that apparently is a, some type, you could argue, that's sort of a hypothesis, that there's a certain cultural, institutional, steady level of development. What I mean by it is that certain countries seem to get stuck at certain level of relative development. Like Spain got to 100% of the EU average and then declined. Portugal got to 100% almost and then declined. Greece got to 90% and declined. 
So it seems like there is like this invisible ceiling for certain countries, which you can hardly breach unless you invest in fundamental long-term frontier skills. That means investing in innovation, investing in human capital, investing in brains, investing in, in products and services that can inspire the world, not just your own country or the region. And I think Poland and Eastern Europe, it's still a little bit like Spain and Portugal. And the jury is out whether it will cross this invisible ceiling or not. Mm. I want to stick a pin in that topic of the invisible ceiling. because uh, Before that, I want to talk about maybe what triggered a lot of those kind of growing uh, economies in Europe, uh, you know, your Greece, your Spain, your Portugal, to then kind of backslide from the EU ceiling. Seems like the 2008 recession and kind of the decade of crisis, if you can call it that, thereafter had a big part to play in that. But Poland was fairly well insulated, at least from 2008. Um, so do you think that's a unique advantage? And if so, what allowed Poland to weather that global crisis? Sure. Uh, again, uh, an excellent question. So uh, let me start by saying that, in fact, Poland was the only economy in Europe that grew in 2009. So it was what we would say uh, a green island. So the, a sea of, you know, uh, red countries that had significant recessions. Poland, the only, Poland was the only one that actually grew by 2.9% in 2009. And there were various reasons. One is, in fact, that Poland did not adopt euro yet. And it's another big debate whether, when, and whether, whether and when to adopt the euro. Uh, Poland was just just also much more competitive than than Greece and Portugal. One of the reasons it's it's more competitive is because and more anti-fragile, as Nassim Taleb would say, is because pretty much most the most of Poland's exports are extremely diversified. There's not a single item or not a single industry that represents more than 10% of the total exports, which means that, say, unlike Slovakia or Czech Republic, where the majority of their exports are based on automobile, automobile industry, or Greece, which was agriculture and others. So Poland has a very diversified economy. So I think the fact that it could devalue its currency mattered. The fact that it, it had a very diversified exports and internal economy. The fact that also... It adopted good economic policies. So unlike the silly austerity policies that Western Europe adopted and forced upon Greece, Poland actually had a full Keynesian maneuver that it engineered on the economy. Uh, you know, general government deficit increased to 9% in 2009 and 10, which was one of the key reasons why this, this Green Island happened. So I think there's a number of other uh, factors, but I think these three, the valuation of the cover currency, diversified economy, and Keynesian fiscal and monetary policy were really critical. Mm. I want to hold on that topic of diversified exports because uh, I think it's really important now. You're seeing another country that has diversified exports, Germany, kind of facing a lot of flack because as it grew, its export economy, it relied a lot on China. Now, of course, kind of the top line numbers are not insane for Germany. I think it's only 2.5% of GDP mm -hmm. is from exports to China. But like, it's really fundamental to kind of their economic profiles like BASF, Volkswagen, all these huge German companies rely on the Chinese market. 
Is that a risk for Poland as it continues to grow that export economy? And if so, how can it kind of lean into friendshoring in the U.S. and EU uh, and make sure that, that that growth remains strong and they don't have to decouple their economy at any point? Excellent question again. So let me start with Germany. German, the, the, the share of exports going to China in total German export has been declining. And in fact, Poland and, and Eastern Europe is the major destination for German exports, more than China, that most people would not, would not uh, know it. But also, Germany is not dependent on China only for its exports, but also for more than, I think it's 100, 100 billion dollars plus that German companies earn within China. So there's two parts of the equation, not only the exports, but billions of dollars that are earned by Volkswagen and Bayer and, and BASF and other German companies in profits in China. So, you know, from looking at the global prof profits for Volkswagen, for instance, almost 40% of global profits come from China. For Audi, it was, I mean, Audi part is Volkswagen, but pretty much for all the other German car um, groups, China is between 20 to 40% of their global income, which is not necessarily part of exports. So again, China is not only important for Germany for exports, but also for all these profits that they make there. Now, going forward, it's clear, and I think we, we already heard it from Germans and only from them, that they will need to move away, shift away, restructure the, the global exports and FDI, for various reasons. One of them is that they were so wrong on Putin. I mean, we Poles and Estonians and, and Romanians and others, we've been telling Germans for 30 years, don't trust Russia, don't build another pipeline, don't, don't make Nord Stream operational. You will end up being disappointed. You cannot rely on Russia as a supplier. And the Germans were saying for 30 years, no, you're all Russophobic. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we can do deals with Putin because we trust him. And now it turned out that the Germans were wrong and Eastern Europeans were right. And to the credit of, of Germans, they understood their mistake. They apologized for their mistake. And they have now, they're in the process of restructuring uh, the, the global uh, value chains. And I think they clearly aware that China will be sort of a big question mark going forward. What it all means actually for Eastern Europe or for Mexico or, or for Vietnam, another country I work with, is that these are the countries that are friends. So when, since you mentioned friendshoring, in fact, Eastern Europe, Vietnam, Mexico, and a few other countries will be the beneficiaries of this balkanization, of this, this division of the global trade markets. So if if German company going forward will have to make a choice between investing marginal billion dollars in China or in Czech Republic, I think now they will be much more likely to invest in Eastern Europe and hopefully in Ukraine soon than far away in, in Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good transition, I guess, to my next question, because uh, we do have a global economy that's changing pretty significantly. Uh, and there are also elements, uh, you know, Poland being a post-Soviet republic, um, being so proximate to Western Europe and the EU, uh, that kind of, as you call them, that, that contribute to these ultimate uh, reasons for, for Poland's economic growth. So do you see a similar path still existing for other developing economies 
Uh, or do you think the model's really going to have to change over the next over the next few decades? So, yes. Um, I think that the critical question to to every citizen of the world is how do we create a world that, first of all, would fully eliminate extreme poverty? Uh, and there's still almost 700 million people that live in poverty as we speak. And how do we create the, a world with where prosperity is shared in principle with everyone so that inequality does not accre- uh, increase and undermine all these sort of future, uh, smart future uh, students of Princeton? And I think on, on first on poverty, uh, most of poverty until so until the, the rest, the end of the century, there would be the, the question of global poverty will mostly be a sub-Saharan question. This is where the vast majority of poor people will, will live and a few other countries in Asia and, and Latin America. And the question is, what kind of models should they look up to? I mean, first of all, there's probably a fundamental question whether the local elites are ready to let go, whether they have created inclusive societies that will want them to adopt good policies. And on this, I'm pessimistic. I think that a lot of these countries, and, and you know, I will not specify which ones, but they still have elites, they still have systems that are largely extractive and oligarchic. So even if you have the best ideas in the world, the elites just don't want to adopt them. And that's a, that's a fundamental issue uh, in, in 150 countries plus around the world. But, but assuming, and we can have a discussion about what would change these elites, but assuming that they do mean well, I think there's a, at least a couple of models that they could look up to. One is Asian tiger model, you know, Korea, Taiwan, China, Singapore, and a few others. But it was a very specific growth model, uh, which was based on protectionism, subsidies, corruption, export-driven growth at any price. And in today's world, it's very difficult to replicate the Asian tiger success story because subsidies are not sexy, protectionism is not welcome, um, corruption virtually ends up in kept capturing the state. So it's a, it's a very sui generis example of success that East Asia has experienced. And I think in, from that perspective, Eastern Europe could be could be equally or even more relevant because what these countries did is they build institutions. If you're a poor country, you can do it too. You can absorb Western institutions and like Japan and Korea earlier and Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. You can open up your borders, your markets, which was also critical to growth and everyone will applaud. You can invest in, in uh, human capital, which is critical. A lot of these countries that are not going forward they are underinvesting in human capital, and you can you 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 can invest in in social mobility, in creating an inclusive society. So I think these four key factors is what developing countries could look at, and and Eastern Europe experience suggests that you can adopt these policies: open markets, investment in human capital, uh, Reducing state ownership, but but not privatizing too fast, sort of a, another interesting topic, and investing in social mobility, th- including through education. So these are some of the sort of key prescriptions that these developing countries could could look at. Yeah, uh, I want to hold on to something you mentioned early in that response, which is that for a country to really develop, 
you need the oligarchs, the powers that be, to relinquish you know control of the economy. Yes. Um, it seems that your suggestion is that that really does require a shock of some sort. Um, and I think that gets to a really interesting topic that you discussed at the beginning of the Warsaw Consensus paper, which is basically like what economists can and can't do. Because um, you do have these instances throughout history in which, you know, a country tries to implement some of these reforms, uh, you know, often open markets, maybe investing in human capital or social mobility, but they don't have that shock that leads to the release uh, of power. Um, so I guess my general question is like, you know, economists have developed these policy suggestions, these models of development. Uh, 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 but like, how reproducible are they? Like, they seem like they've been developed kind of post hoc and then turned into ad hoc solutions. But how like reproducible are the results of social science? I guess is what sure, I'm trying to get at. Sure, sure. That's, that's a critical question. And yeah. I have a lecture later today on what makes countries rich, what, what keeps them poor. But it's, it's, you know, let's take the analogy of the marathon. What economists are doing is giving advice on how to train for a marathon, which is useful, but they do not give advice on how to be motivated to start running in the first place, which is exactly what the problem is for developing countries and those countries that are called in the so-called uh, middle income trap. Um, so my point is, I think it's very rare, unfortunately, for countries to become rich because after all, there's only 45 countries around the world that the World Bank defines as high income. If you take away oil-based economies like Saudi Arabia or Qatar, some small islands, there's only 45 countries that made it rich. And I looked at all, all 45 of them. And in fact, with few exceptions like the UK, France, America, they had to go, so the vast majority of countries that are today rich have, got, have had to go through a period of violence that removed the old elites and opened up the society. But the vast majority of countries, again, for better or worse, and I'm not the one here to recommend an external shock and violence, not at all. I'm just stating a fact that this is actually what, what has happened to most of these countries. The elites never really wanted to let go. And it's pretty much you have two sub-equilibria, sub oligarchic and inclusive, and it's very difficult to get one, out one of these. The good news is that once you become inclusive, it's difficult to become oligarchic again, even though it can happen if you like lower taxes like in the U.S. But if you, if you are oligarchic, you tend to stay oligarchic because the elites are so well embedded. They are so rich. They are so powerful that short of a big shock, uh, they just not want to let go. The, the question is, so what is the recipe? And, you know, I wish I had a silver bullet, but I think we just have to keep working on it. So in, instead of in lieu of an external shock, you can imagine a situation where a collection of small policy choices can create a critical mass of change. Now, ex ante, we don't know what is the set of policies that would be needed for an oligarchic society to shift to an inclusive society. We don't know what it is, but it should not, does not mean that we should not keep on trying. For instance, it may well be that investing in education will be critical to create it, to, to creating a middle class 
that will revolt against the elites and will change the society. Maybe it's about opening up the borders for trade so that there is new, so that some people will get rich and create alternative sources of power. Uh, maybe it's about uh, creating pressure on countries to join regional European-like type institutions, unions that will provide an institutional straitjacket for things they can do and they cannot do. So there's a long list of things one can do. And again, I'm not optimistic. I, I wouldn't hold my breath that this will change anytime soon. But, but you know, what the IMF, what the World Bank, what everyone else is doing is trying to press and push certain policies forward, hoping that at some point we'll realize that all of these policies will actually turn into something something bigger and will reach a critical mass of change. Mm -hmm. I take that, um, but I think it understates the challenge that you levy against economics in this paper. Um, you uh, mentioned the fact, for instance, I believe it's like there are 150 different uh, ultimate solutions to growth that various economic ec economists and economic papers have put forth through like regressions mm -hmm. like through sound experiments yes that seem to like be solely responsible for what makes countries rich or poor um and i think that highlights a really big difference uh between social science and something like natural science because natural science we can usually pinpoint a, a cause a variable that leads to a change in the state of things right. but social science you basically have an infinite number of variables to deal with so what I'd say is like when you're looking at Poland, what did you or how did you decide to focus on variables? Uh, mm -hmm. And do you have like a, I don't know, like a generalizable lesson? Like what is the, the path for social sciences in a world in which there's basically like an infinite number of explanations for events? Sure. So let, let me use this marathon analogy again, Absolutely. because I think it's, a, it's an apt one. Again, economics is really about giving you advice on how to train for a marathon. And again, as with any or like diet advice, there's all kinds of different approaches to how to train and, and, and with different results. I mean, you can, you can run below three hours in marathon and you can run in five hours and still be a successful marathon runner. Uh, so there's all kinds of prescriptions, but at the same time, there are certain fundamentals. For instance, if you don't train at all, you're probably not going to finish the marathon. So I, I think there are, there are certain key foundations. Again, economics is a social science. It's not physics. It's not like there's a force of gravity that always works. But at the same time, there are quasi-gravity-like rules in economics. For instance, on average, most of the time, having an open economy helps. Investing in education helps. Having macroeconomic macro stability helps. Um, bringing institutions, rule of law, independent public administration, uh, you know, competitive markets. On average, and most of the time, it works. So my point is, there, there's a set of prescriptions that historically have, have worked well. And at the margin, countries were extremely different in what truly made them rich at the very end. You know, again, South Korea is an example of of growth based on exports coupled with subsidies and protectionism. Eastern Europe is a totally different type of growth, which is largely based on FDI. 
of bringing in foreign investment and living off of the foreign investment and getting richer. So you have various, various different approaches. But what keeps to what is the common denominator for Korea and Poland, they had all invested in human capital. I mean, Korea has a higher scholarization ratio than the US and so so actually does Poland or is very close to it. So like 70% of young Koreans are enrolled in university. In Poland, it's now 50-60%. Uh, they all maintain macroeconomic stability, so relatively low inflation, stable uh, fiscal policy, um, sustainable debt. They have all invested in, in, in open markets, at least export-oriented. So I could go on and on. The point is, as with this marathon running, there are certain prescriptions that really work. You need to train, you need to run, you need to get on a diet if you really want to finish the the marathon, you know, in a in a sensible with a good time. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think you got to my, kind of my my last point there, which is basically like hey, you have this line that really stuck out to me in the paper. It says this paper moves away from the usual stock market like focus on the short term and reemphasizes the importance of the long term perspective. It seems like often you are approaching economics more like a historian would than kind of in our traditional model of economists where it's like you're collecting what data you can find, running regressions on it. You have this kind of bigger perspective. Um, do you think that kind of reflects your approach? And would that be kind of a general suggestion you have, especially with the field of like developmental economics, like that, that broader historical approach? Very much, very much agree. And I would recommend this to everyone. I yeah. think I've done my share of, of macro. I've taught macro. I've learned, you know, I've learned macro, did my PhD in macro. But at the end of the day, I realized that it's just not enough. Again, is this training advice, not advice on how to get motivated to run a marathon in the first place. And also having worked in, in, the, in the Polish government and at the IMF at the World Bank, I understood that economic advice very often stops at the door and you... You, you go through the door and it's totally about politics and history and culture and values and all the other things that we are not trained to think about. And my also my stay in Beijing, I lived in China for four years until last year, that also I understood how much of China's experience is not driven by economic recipes, but by long-term trends, long-term values, long-term approach to things. And even Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping, even yesterday when he started the, the, the meeting with uh, President Biden, he said, he started by saying that we are here to learn, to, to leverage lessons of history uh, for our discussions, for our debates. And I think it was an illuminating moment because it's, it, it showed how history and a sort of much bigger picture drives Xi Jinping and drives China's economic policies. So my advice to economists would be, obviously, do your paper, uh, you know, do your regressions. It's always useful. Every economist has to have the technical skills. But at the same time, don't, don't get bogged down in these really nitty-gritty, tiny, tiny problems. At the end of the day, economics should really be looking at, at history, at psychology, at sociology, and everything else. Ours, the difference between an economist and sociologist and others, with all due respects to, to all the others, is that we have 
we have the apparatus, we are taught the skills to be a bit more quantitative than everyone else. And even it helps even, even the, with a historical approach. But overall, let's not focus only on, on the regressions. There's the world way beyond regressions that ultimately decides which countries get rich and which countries stay poor. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it's a, a powerful piece of advice. Uh, uh, I want to end with a little bit of that long-term perspective. Let's say uh, uh, Poland does break that kind of invisible ceiling in the EU. Uh, I was reading a paper, or rather a book recently, uh, uh, Robert Gilpin, Gilpin, uh, War and Change in International Politics. Mm -hmm. He talks about how a lot of recent kind of hegemonies, world powers, uh, international players arose because they broke out of this extractivist model that you discussed earlier mm -hmm. and into the model of kind of the modern industrial nation state. Let's say Poland does get to that, that point where it's a mm -hmm. kind of a full uh, player in the EU. Um, what role do you, would you like to see it play? How, A, like, uh, 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 how do you envision it getting there, breaking that ceiling? And then B, what kind of international player do you see it being with the history that it has? And how can it create grounds for similar growth stories, uh, you know, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America? Sure. Uh, great question. Let me start from a broad picture. I think for the rest of our lives, we will be witnessing the, the rise of the rest and we'll be looking at what happens to the West. Now, I'm not, I dislike the, the conversation or the, the argument that the West is in decline. I, I don't buy this argument. The West is in decline on, in, as reflected in its lower share in global GDP, not because someone else has been so much better and developed a better system. It's because the West has allowed other countries to become rich in the first place. So I think to me, the, the declining share of Western GDP in global GDP is a symptom of success of Western institutions, but not a symptom of Western decline. Because if you know China, the rise of China, Korea, and others would have not had happened had it not been for an open Western liberal system that embraced these countries. And it's the same for, for Poland and Eastern Europe. We would be nowhere, was it not for the opening of the markets, the, the, the Western support, the Western institutional and policy and financial anchoring that the, 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 the Eastern Europe as a whole has received. In other, you could, you could actually say that Poland and Eastern Europe are the, the successful Western progeny. We are exactly the ones that are that are the epitome of the of how one can become rich by by westernizing and following following the West. So I think the rest of the and I so so going forward until the rest of the century, I don't think there's much there's we should talk about Western decline. The, again, West has been um, responsible for success of other countries. It still produces ninety percent plus of global technological and civilizational progress, and it's still a cultural and soft power of the world. So I'm not that worried, but at the same time, we have to, 
we have to keep on working to ensure that the world stays open, stays liberal, and becomes more inclusive. And this is where I think the role of Poland and Eastern Europe comes in. So as a Pole, I think you know, Poland is just less than 1% of global GDP. So with all due respect, there's little that we can do. But there's, there's a different channel. So Poland being part of the EU, with a strong voice in the EU, we could have an impact on 450 million citizens of the European Union and still the, the first, second largest economy of the world if you put all of the EU countries together. So I think Poland on itself only matters potentially as, a, as an example of how to be successful and what kind of economic policies to adopt. But I think its major role for the rest of this century is, is to be a strong supporter of the European Union as a blueprint and as a foundation of open uh, markets and open societies in the world. And I would want Poland to be the one that actually supports the idea of the United States of Europe, which today this, this, this ideal sounds utopian. There's very little appetite for it. But I think the countries that particularly benefited from, from Western Europe, like Poland, like Czech Republic, like, like Hungary, should be the ones to now turn around and say, let's work on this success together. Let me now contribute and let Europe and the West become a better version of itself. And I think this is the role of, of a lot of countries that have been successful because of the benevolence of the West. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a good place to wrap up. Uh, as always, final question on our show, the name of the podcast is Policy Punchline. What's your punchline for this, this conversation? My punchline, punchline is that for countries to, be, to become rich and not to be poor, there's a number of, of policies you need to adopt, but fundamentally, you need to create an inclusive society. There's an inclusive society. It's a society where uh, a, a guy, a, a, a young guy that was raised by a single mom in a small town in, in, in the middle of nowhere in Poland could write this book and join your podcast today. So I would want this inclusive society to be actually true for for most of the world. Awesome. Uh, well, Professor Marcin Piakowski, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.